Welcome to Overdetermined, a Rethinking Marxism podcast. This is episode two of what we are optimistically calling volume one of the podcast. I am here with Malia Safri. Malia, hello. Hi. Super excited about our podcast today. Yes, absolutely. And also with Ryan Watt. Ryan, how are you? Good. Feeling good. Uh, like Malia said, very excited for folks to get to listen in. Yes, and that, that is because uh, you both were able to interview Kristen Godsey. Um, and for those who are not aware, uh, Kristen Godsey is a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania, um, has done uh, ethnographic work on post-communist uh, Bulgaria and, and, and just kind of Eastern European uh, studies in general in terms of, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, uh, the, the move to capitalism and labor markets and such uh, away from socialism and just sort of doing, well, uh, work on thinking about rethinking um, what was it actually like under socialism? What are some things that we can take away and, and that maybe we should be thinking about adding back in? And also maybe things aren't so much better now. Uh, so uh, uh, Malia and Ryan, uh, having done the interview uh, and you know you did some, some, some reading also of, of Kristen's work, what are some things that folks should be uh, listening for? Yeah, I mean... Um... Like you said, Malia and I split the list, and the book that I spent the most time with was um, her book, Second World, Second Sex. Um, that one is more kind of specifically focused on women's movements, and um, she's making a, an attempt to understand why uh, the Western perspective on feminism has traditionally been one of, uh, like, totemic feminist, and then third world feminism, which was so lucky as to have instances where it uh, was picked up by Western feminists. Um, and she really spends a lot of time with this, you know, liminal space, the second world, and why that history has been wiped out from the sort of Western feminist perspective. And I think folks should listen in because it offers great sense of recovering these people's lived experiences which is something that we don't really get a lot of uh, when we're listening in on debates about um, Soviet or Soviet and socialist countries. Um, I'm just going to say real quickly that the thing, there was this line that she had in why women have better sex under socialism, that there's this received wisdom that everything in the West is good. Everything in the East is bad. And when I read that and I understood immediately, oh boy, I mean, if you're aware of scholarship around Orientalism, there's a lot to unpack about that sentence. And that's what she exactly does in that book, in kind of her mm -hmm. whole research agenda. That's what she's been working on. Like, hey, maybe there were some good ideas that we need to remember once again today in even in especially in pandemic times. So I'm really excited for, for people to kind of hear her nuanced, you know, sort of reading of history. Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. So again, if uh, I think if you're if you're curious about socialism, uh, if you're not aware of some of these things, or even just interested in why folks like us would be thinking about what what some maybe consider you know failed projects. Uh, of socialism, uh, then definitely listen in. Um, we we trust that you will definitely find this conversation uh, productive and interesting. Enjoy. Hi, you're listening to Overdetermined. Uh, my, my name is Malia Safri. Hello, my name is Ryan Watt. So we are here with Professor Kristen Godsey. Uh, she's professor at University of Pennsylvania in the Russian and Euro- Eastern European Studies Department. Um, she's written many books, many articles in popular and academic outlets. Um, and and she's written on uh, actually parenting and and many other kind of Islamic relations after communist rule. But today we're actually going to be talking to her primarily about three of her bo- more recent books. Um, the most recent book being Second World, Second Sex, Socialist Women's Activism and Global Solidarity During the Cold War. Um, uh, the other two books being Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence and Red Hangover Legacies of 20th Century Communism. We'll, we'll just jump in, um, in the, and, I, and I'll start off with Why Women Have Better Sex. Um, in, in, that, you know, in that book, you really focus on how parity between men and women produced a different kind of relationship between men and women. Um, and you kind of, you, you know, you show some pretty interesting and sort of in some ways common sense sorts of points about how if women are more secure and if they are more secure in their work lives and economically, then that's going to make for different kinds of household relations and different kinds of marriages. And I think you uh, use one statistic where you showed a study about how East and West German women's sexual orgasms. And you told, you reported to us that East German women had twice as many orgasms before reunification than they did after. Right. I mean, in some ways it's like kind of a commonsensical um, point that people are going to have better sex when they are more secure in their in, in in their fuller lives, and I guess my question is this: in today's pandemic world, uh, I mean, we see articles about you know Sylvia Federici and her point about uh, you know the second shift in the New York Times, and it's it's actually being kind of publicized about how much worse uh, at both. Uh, in terms of unemployment, right? Women's unemployment has risen at a faster level globally. And then we have a lot of women also reporting how household labor is actually more unequally distributed today than in pre-pandemic times. And so in some ways, we are moving towards the opposite of what you were writing about in Why Women Have Better Sex. And I guess... um, 
in in some ways it's like the this was the book that you didn't write like why women would have worse sex under capitalism right and that's kind of what we are seeing in a very extreme way today so can you just help us understand that contradiction yeah so i mean i think that this is the pandemic in some ways has been a wonderful gift for me because it really proved many of the points that I was trying to argue in the book, right? So one of the things that we have spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, myself and many colleagues who work on social reproduction theory, people exactly like Silvia Federici, uh, but even going back to uh, feminist economists like Marilyn Waring and her groundbreaking work uh, for, and who's counting, right? This idea that capitalism requires the unpaid labor of caregivers in the home in order to thrive. And the pandemic was the perfect moment to study that because, of course, the infrastructure such that it existed in our country, completely collapsed because of the shutdowns required to prevent the spread of this disease. And what that meant was that suddenly there was an incredible amount of work that needed to be done in the home, particularly around caring for children, school young children whose daycare centers had closed, school-aged children who were no longer able to go to school, but also sometimes elderly relatives who needed to be brought home from, you know, communal living situations, and then people who got sick and actually needed to be cared for. Well, it turns out that 40, 50 years of Western liberal kind of girl boss, lean in Sheryl Sandberg type feminism didn't actually do anything to change the underlying kind of patriarchal structures of our societies. And the, the very threadbare social safety net in this country just collapsed completely. It just unraveled. I mean, not that there was really anything there to begin with, but all of that labor devolved onto the shoulders of women. And that meant that many, four times more women left the labor force by September, 2020 than men. I think C. Nicole Mason at um, the Women's Research Policy Institute called it a she session to talk about the sort of jobs apocalypse that was hitting women at that time. But, you know, this was true in the UK as well, where many women said that they had to do all of this extra care work in the home. And I think the thing is that what that shows very clearly is that even though we have the veneer of feminism, we have the veneer of sexual equality in the West, particularly, I would say, in the United States and the United Kingdom. The minute something goes wrong, right, women's unpaid labor is capitalism's backup plan. And it always has been, right? Women have always been a reserve army of labor. If the boys go off to the front to fight, they put the women into the factories. You give them canteens and childcare centers, and you give them all the things that you need to support their labor participation when war is happening. The minute the boys come home from the front, oh, well, you better get those women back into the kitchen so they can make some more babies for us. I think that that's the thing that has become really clear with the pandemic. And to the extent that I make an argument about what I think was done differently in these uh, state socialist countries in Eastern Europe and to a certain extent in the democratic socialist countries of Scandinavia, 
It's that they really socialized reproductive, uh, what we'd consider like socially reproductive work. They invested very heavily in job protected parental leaves, in kindergartens and creches, in after school programs, in something as simple as like homework clubs. I'm always fascinated by homework clubs, sending kids home to their parents with all of their homework done. It's pretty pretty great idea, actually. <laughs> and what happens is in a society where all of the burden of child caring or caring has not been traditionally done by women, I mean, it's still a, a ex, there's still an expectation that it's women's work. But once it becomes socialized, and especially when you have uh, parental leave programs where there's kind of a specific daddy quota, where a certain percentage of the parental leave has to be taken by the father, lo and behold, when the pandemic hit, we can see that in countries where there was a more equitable distribution of care work, partially because it was socialized and being subsidized by public funds outside of the home, men and women had a more equitable distribution of that labor when all of those facilities had to close down. In countries like the United States, where childcare is something that you pay for, it's very expensive if you can find it. And when those childcare centers closed and those kids came home, overwhelmingly that labor was picked up by women and to great detriment to many of those women who either lost their jobs or had to withdraw from the labor force, and not to mention the sort of broader kind of psychological and social consequences of those extra burdens during the pandemic. I mean, we were seeing so many just newspaper stories about women I, I couldn't who couldn't handle it and quit their jobs because it was just too much to juggle. Um, in some ways, do you, do you see any serious attempt at actually addressing this? I mean, in the context of the United States, I will say that there, the, the recent movements towards some sort of universal child care would help. Uh, I certainly think that the child tax care, sorry, child credit. tax credit uh, that just came into effect, I believe today, right? Aren't the, yeah. the checks going out today? today. Uh, this could uh, go a long way into at least valuing the, the, the labor of reproducing the next generation, it's by far not enough. I think we could go much further. But I think that there is a conversation. And, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but I think that the, the real reason that this conversation is happening is because, wow, there's a labor shortage. Yeah. Raise, uh, wages are rising. And so all of these employers are like, well, we better get those women back into the labor force so we can push those wages down for everybody else. Um, I also think that there's a fear of demographic decline. Birth rates in this country have been falling. The pandemic turned out to be a baby bust. And so for people who are thinking long-term about economic growth, a shrinking population 
bodes very ill for the economic health of the United States. Now, it's great for the environment, but from the economic perspective of our, you know, people in the Fed or whatever. So their motives are not because they want to make women's lives better. Their motives are not because I think they care about American families. Their motives are quite ulterior. But nevertheless, I think that there is a renewed attention to this problem precisely because so many women have had to leave the labor force. Many of those women have skills and education and training which are valuable to the labor force. And on top of that, many young women seeing what this sort of jobs apocalypse and the psychosocial stress related to parenting are saying, you know what? I think I'll not have children. And that's not unreasonable decision. And so I think all of those factors are kind of coming together to force a conversation. So something as small, this is a really interesting um, kind of observation, I think. On March 5th of 2020, literally like a week and a half before everything shut down, Gus Vezarek and I in the New York Times published an op-ed called you know, women's unpaid labor is worth $10.9 trillion or something like that. And there was a, there were like 900 comments on this article on the, you know, on the discussion that until the New York Times just shut it down. And the thing that I thought was so interesting was, first of all, the number of people who wrote in and said, but women love doing this. This is work that women love to do. Why should it be compensated in any way? So that's the, you know, like we shouldn't monetize it. This is like something natural and beautiful and women are just happy when they're taking care of their loved ones. And then the second comment that I thought was really telling was, well, we do pay women through their husbands, right? Women are remunerated for this labor indirectly because of, you know, as if we live in a world where one wage is enough to sustain a family. So, so a lot of people in the United States were living in a fantasy land around this issue. I think a month later after that op-ed was, was published, nobody was living in that fantasy land anymore, right? So, so that's how quickly I think the conversation yeah. changed. You know, when that article came out, I remember thinking, Can, do people really believe this? Like a happy woman at the kitchen doing dishes, like this is like the highlight of her day doing folding laundry for her family. I mean, okay, maybe for some people it is. But for the most part, I felt like there was a real disconnect between what people believe about this kind of, you know, social reproductive work that goes on behind the scene and the reality of it. But the pandemic really took the blinders off of many Americans, especially, I would say, many American women who may have, you know, for a long time thought that, they had it all, that they were able to do the kind of work family balance thing and they were slaying the boardroom and leaning in and hashtag girl bossing their way up to the C-suite, but not so easy during the pandemic. I, I feel like in, in your books, in Red Hangover, in Why Women Have Better Sex, in Second World, Second, um, Second Sex, um, you're, you're looking at a variety of lived social experiences under socialism, kind of for a Western audience, right? Um, and in Red Hangover, you write about the 
German reunification talks, and I found this very striking. And you said there was a very crude reigning logic. Um, the rule was what's from the West is good and from the e what's from the East is bad. And this, mean, this meant that things like kind of what you had just even mentioned early pre-kindergarten, a 12-year school system, universal health care, all of these programs, social services were discarded. And then this, of course, directly negatively impacted mortality rates and produced what you called psychosocial stress and really deadly levels of stress, right? Fatal, um, in, in because you also talk about how lifespan sort of shortened after reunification for, for East Germans. And so I have a couple questions related to this, because I, I think your, um, your project has been to really think about a nuanced assessment of socialism and capitalism. But how, like, how do you then keep, let's say, your readers from going towards almost a Scandinavian model of democratic socialism, if those are the kinds of things that we keep from socialist projects. And I guess I, I wanted to help, uh, ask you to help us unpack, what does it actually mean to mix and match the best of socialism and capitalism? Yeah, so that's a it's a great question, and it's something that I struggle with a lot in my own thinking. I tend to feel myself as a very left fluid person. So there are days when I woke up, wake up, and I'm reading Kropotkin, or I'm going back to read Goldman or Bakunin, and I'm like, you know what? I don't think the state is going to help us. I really have problems with the state, and and many negative things about 20th century state socialism had to do with the centralization of power and the centrally planned economy. On the other hand, when I think realistically about what we can do to actually fix things, then I think if we're going to have collective ownership of the means of production, there has to be something in which that collective ownership inheres, and why not have it be a democratic state? Maintaining the democratic state is the challenge. Maintaining it free of outside influence is always going to be a challenge. But if you think that that's the way to go, then you have to understand that there needs to be some kind of democratic structure in place or you know, some kind of responsive structure in place to deal with the very complicated project of running an entire economy. On the other hand, there are some days when I think, you know, and um, th these are, the, these are the, the, the days when I think, you know, maybe in the context of 2021 in the United States, pushing for universal child care, pushing for a universal child tax credit, pushing for universal health care or housing as a human right. No, it is not the ideal. No, it's not going to solve all the problems. But I think as Noam Chomsky once said, sometimes we just need to expand the floor of the cage, right? Um, we're still in the cage, but we can make it a little bit more comfortable while we're living in it. And I think that that's a real struggle for many, many people on the left. People can get very dogmatic about where they stand in this um, sort of spectrum of ideas of whether this is all about some kind of taxation and redistribution or, you know, in the case of Norway, the the state oil company is controlled by a state, you know, it's majority owned by the government. And then those profits 
are oddly invested in the Norwegian stock exchange, and then the revenues are distributed to the population, the sovereign wealth fund, right? So it's a weird hybrid model. You know, the Soviet model was probably the best they could do in 1917, given that the, the economy that they had to deal with after the First World War and the Civil War, and not, let's not forget the famine, right? Um, they tried to do certain kinds of things. If you know your Soviet history, I was telling you earlier that this is like my brain right now. I'm really looking in the workers' opposition and uh, to, to Lenin and Trotsky and the aftermath of war communism and the new economic policy. And I think that all of these issues are, are issues that we have to discuss and we have to think really hard about how to apply the experience of the 20th century to the challenges of the 21st century, because the challenges are different. So to the extent that I see my project writ large, to the extent that there's any coherence in it, because sometimes I worry, right, that there isn't, but to the extent that I see a, a project, you know, when I look back over the books that I've written over the years, it's that there were many things about state socialism in Eastern Europe that they got right. There were a lot of things that they got wrong. There's no doubt about that. But there are a lot of things that they got right. And secondly, there was an incredible amount of diversity in this world. You cannot look at Yugoslavia and self-managing socialism in Yugoslavia and compare that to Soviet-style communism. You can't look at what was called soft socialism in Bulgaria and compare that to goulash communism in Hungary, let alone if we expand out and go to China or Cuba, or places like Ethiopia, or Tanzania, or Angola, right? These are all very, very different kinds of projects that sort of picked and chose from a basket of socialist policies and tried to apply them to the very specific circumstances, historical circumstances of decolonialism, for instance, with which they were dealing. So I don't think that the only thing that we can take from state socialist Eastern Europe are these sort of more social democratic policies that lead us to Scandinavia. I think some of them are really important, particularly the ones around family issues and women's economic independence, partially because they were implemented from their origin in sort of, you know, Germany, France, um, Russia in the in the mid nineteen late nineteenth century, they were kind of implemented in these places at the same time. They kind of took different routes, but they have a common origin. But I think there are lots of things, for instance, like self managing socialism in Yugoslavia, that is a really interesting model, right? Um, and in fact, today, after thirty years of complete rejection of their state socialist past, there are now in Slovenia and Croatia. Democratic Socialist parties who are saying, you know, maybe we should bring back some of those policies that we had before um, 1989 and, 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 and think about the ways in which the government can move into the economy and create opportunities for workers and redistribute some of these really unequally distributed profits since, you know, the rise of the oligarchy and the mafia and all these things that happened in Eastern Europe after the end of communism. So, so I... I think that there's a there's a kind of like strategic reassessment that has to happen around these policies. And yet, I'm also very wary in in the in the world in which I live of people who deny, for instance, the Holodomor 
or who try to say that Stalin's purges didn't really happen or Stalin's purges were necessary, right? When people like Khrushchev didn't think they were, right? So, so there's this sort of extreme view, which is everything about the state socialist past was great. Um, we should, you know, we should be mounting the barricades and, and creating another Bolshevik revolution tomorrow. And so I also want to say, no, the, the, the shortages were real. The, the secret police were real. The travel restrictions were real. Those things were not anti-communist propaganda dreamed up in the West, which unfortunately I think some people believe. So it's a very, very delicate line for me because I, I live in a world of scholarly historians and anthropologists who want me to be very, very careful about the historical realities of the 20th century. And on the other hand, you know, I live in a, a political world in where, because of my own convictions, I really believe that there are some things that are really important, lessons that we can learn from these societies that are applicable to the present day. And I'm doing my best to recuperate those and, and to sort of put them out there for people, right, to, to discuss and think about and dig into this wonderful body of scholarship that I just mentioned, while also believing in the possibility of real social change in the current political moment. And that is not always the easiest project, not always the easiest line to balance, uh, you know, the, the, the line to walk, so to speak, in my work. And I, and I, I struggle with it because it often means that I get attacked by both sides, <laughs> rather than rather than like the compromise of being able to to sort of like have a scholarly community or a conversation with kind of a more public facing world and a more scholarly world i feel like i'm often just sandwiched between them and and it's been a struggle because well on the one hand i want to make these policies and experiments from the 20th century relevant to the present day but on the other hand i want to be faithful to the context from which they emerged in Eastern Europe and the negative aspects of those contexts. Mm -hmm. I've listened to a few talks of yours that are available online. And in one of them, I remember you saying, young leftists today grow up in a time where their interpretation of socialism was not so much the Soviet Union. It was, you know, a very real and cohesive response to the 2008 housing uh, crisis, right? For a lot of people today, socialism does not mean what it meant to older generations, right? And the latter half of the answer that you just gave, I think is kind of an address to that. Um, while you feel it's very important to be very critical um, and understanding, you do also constantly need to qualify every statement that you make. First question, depending on your audience and having spoken to, I'm sure, a lot of younger leftists today, do you feel that you need to walk those statements back as much, you know? With younger? Yeah. With younger? With... No, absolutely not. I mean, I feel like <laughs> sometimes I have these really weird um, experiences, especially when I'm speaking to younger audiences or even with my students, right? Yeah. Where, you know, some people don't realize that the Soviet Union was our ally in World War II. So there's just a kind of basic historical informational base that's missing, right? So, so 
sometimes I'm, you know, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to talk, like, I'll talk about the Holodomor and the famine and the critical scholarship around, was it intentional? Was it bungling? There's all sorts of different discussions around this. And you can dig really deep into the historiography and Sheila Fitzpatrick and Anne Applebaum have gone head to head on this issue. It's so fascinating if you're a historian. When I when I try to get into the the weeds there, then people are like, okay, wait, what's the Holodomor? <laughs> what are we talking about? Yeah. So 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 it's a it's an almost entirely different challenge that I mm-hmm. face sometimes, right? Um, and so that's why, for instance, like in why women have better sex under socialism, I feel like I'm going over a lot of kind of basic ground that might not be necessary for a more advanced um, audience who's better versed in history or better versed, for instance, in Marxist theory. Mm. You know, here's a a great example. I just sent a chapter to a a student of mine, very smart student who just graduated from Penn. And in this chapter, I told her, circle anything that you don't understand or any place where you feel like you need more historical context to understand what I'm saying. And she circled show trial. And I thought, okay, that's odd. You know, maybe I'll double check this one. So I went upstairs. Um, I'm a 19-year-old daughter. And I said, honey, do you know what a show trial is? And she goes, no, what's a show trial? Is that a play? <laughs> and I thought, interesting, hmm. <laughs> right? So, so yeah, I think that that's, um, that's – the, the first thing is that I'm always kind of balancing like a more technical – you know, like I could get in, we could get into a long conversation about use value versus exchange value of emotions and attention. And then my students are like, wait, what? What's the difference? What are you talking about? So that's the first thing. But the second thing, and I think, and this is where I find myself in a, in a, in a slightly difficult um, situation because of my um, more public facing work is that a lot of things that I say get taken out of context mm-hmm. constantly. Right. I can do an hour podcast um, and somebody will go in and clip out 30 seconds. Right. And then frame it in a way that is completely the opposite of what I said. So that's another thing that I find. I'm not on social media for that reason. I don't feel like I can interact productively with people who are just constantly playing a kind of gotcha politics. And so, yeah, so so it's um, so I'm constantly thinking about that when I speak to different audiences, especially in these days where people are, you know, live tweeting your talks or recording your talks or it's, yeah, it, it can, it, be, it can become a very exhausting thing. And, and I think for me, especially, I'm not the most confident public speaker. <laughs> like I get very nervous before I, I, I'm in a room full of a lot of people. I'm, I'm okay on a, you know, like this, where we're just sort of talking on, on on a video chat or whatever. But in a big room of people, I often feel very anxious. And um, and so, and I've always felt that way. And that, yeah. that goes back a long time. And I think that that also heightens the anxiety of of constantly feeling like I'm in a, in a potentially precarious situation with people in the audience because I don't know who's in the audience, right? Um, And as somebody who has gotten death threats and who has gotten rape threats and who has gotten uh, a lot of vitriol um, sent to my office, you know, voicemails left on my phone, all sorts of emails, like it's, it is nerve wracking, I will say, to to have to deal with that kind of thing, you know. And I think that's not just me, that's many, many women who 
speak out and 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 many people just broadly speaking who are politically engaged in the current contemporary american situation the climate of of extreme polarization yeah absolutely can, can i just ask one tiny follow up so i can see how first you could be let's say attacked by socialists right and then you could and then you could also be attacked by anti anti communists right so you're in this strange for the socialists, you're not being socialist enough, and for the anti-communists, yeah. you're. Somebody called me. Somebody called me a social democrat in socialist drag, oh, no. which I thought was really, which was really kind of okay. That's an interesting way of, of framing it. I mean, look, I've been a DSA member. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think, yeah. Go ahead. Anyway, go ahead. I, I was just going to ask, but you know, as someone like you know, I teach political economy. I teach uh, uh, um, kind of race, gender, and class, and and I and I teach a lot of marks uh, uh, at the undergrad level. I have noticed, though, in the last two three years, I have students wanting to form reading groups about socialism, Black Marxism. You know, they uh, so I do some. I there's something that is. Like I, I feel like I'm suddenly getting a different kind of student, a kind of student who just doesn't have the anti-communist baggage of even ten years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering, you know, are, do, how do you feel about that? Do you feel do, do are you seeing that? Do you feel like your work is getting more more like kind of what what I what I heard Ryan ask you is do you are you getting a lot more excited younger students um, interested in your work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's really interesting. I mean, I've been, so I was the faculty liaison for the Democratic Social, the YDSA um, committee. You know, uh, we had a, a branch of that at Bowdoin College. I think it was 2002 or 2003. David Duhalde who is a prominent member of the Democratic Socialist right now. He worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign. He was one of my students, right? So I've been doing this for almost 20 years. And I feel like there've always been a cadre. 10 years ago at Bowdoin, I had an amazing student, Carolyn Martinez, who started a club on campus called Radical Alternatives to Capitalism. And she was more of an anarchist. She had gone to a kind of anarchist school in, in I think she was from Ecuador. And um, she, in order to get funds from, this was back at Bowdoin College before I moved to the University of uh, Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania, um, in order to get funds from the college for a club, they had to have a charter and bylaws. But because she was an anarchist, she refused to have a charter and bylaws because she refused to name officers. So the Bowdoin student government, this is actually such a funny story, they refused to give her, the, the, to give their club. And they had, I think, like 30 students. This would have been like, this was right ar around the time of Occupy Wall Street in the e immediate aftermath of that. She was, you know, obviously very inspired with what was going on down there. And she came to me because they also needed like a faculty liaison, but I was willing to be like a non-hierarchical or whatever thing. But, but after they were rejected, I sent her and three other members of this group of students into the president's office 
to explain the principles of anarchism and to explain how having a charter with named officers would undermine the, the ideological coherence of the club they wanted to form. And he gave them a special dispensation so that they could have a club and get vote and student you know, activity funds without a charter. So, you know, so I always feel there have always been a few. There have always been some students, many of them often non-American, right? But in, yes, I agree with you 100%, in the last four or five years, really, I think since 2016, I think a lot of it has to do with Bernie Sanders and more recently with um, Ocasio-Cortez. I think that the big thing is that people are talking about socialism on the mainstream uh, media, right? They're, they're out there. Bernie Sanders is calling him a Democrat, himself a Democratic socialist. You've got all these young, the quote unquote squad, women of color in Congress who are really standing up for these principles. And I think a lot of young people are just fed up with, with capitalism and with the precarity of the current capitalist economy. So I've been teaching a class called Sex and Socialism every year on and off since 2003. I think was fall of 2003 was the first time I offered that class. And the only times I haven't offered it was when I was on leave. And I've always taught Marx. I've always taught Lenin. I've always taught Clarence Utkin and Alexandra Kolontai. I've often taught people like Proudhon or Tristan. I'm in the spring, most likely. If I'm on campus, I might be teaching a, a course on anarchism. So I feel like I've always been doing this work. And that students have been really receptive and open-minded. Even students who come into my classes not receptive and open-minded, they they leave with at least an understanding that there's a there there, that this isn't just a bunch of, you know, rhetoric and virtue signaling. There's a real critical analysis to be had. There's a real debate about justifying private property. There's a real debate about whether or not we should have a state. There's a real debate about how we organize our um, collectivities, right? What, how big they get and, 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 and the nation state and all of these other issues that, that I think are so fascinating if you read deeply into leftist theories. And so I like the fact a lot that they don't have the baggage of the Cold War. I think that's wonderful. However, I do sometimes, you know, feel like they need to know some of that history, right? Be partially because you know, there are people in positions of power for whom socialism is only the Cold War. I mean, look at Marsha Blackburn, right, who's talking about universal childcare. She's telling, you know, Taylor Swift that in a socialist economy, Taylor Swift won't be able to wear the clothes she wears. I mean, this was on an actual televised interview, right? She tweeted that, you know, we can't have universal childcare in this country because the Soviet Union had it, right? So, I mean, th there's like this weird fantasy world of anti-communism in this country that never left the Cold War, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that that's the... That's the I, I I am so glad that those people are, you know, on their way out of the out of the dominant discourse, let's just say. But I do think that there's still a lot of them around, including, by the way, many of my academic colleagues. Yeah, of course. Of course. I, I want to ask you a, a couple of questions related to the way you write. Um mm -hmm. The, I think your, your work has been described as literary ethnography. I don't know if you, you know, how you feel about that label, but I mean, you, you, you 
incorporate many different kinds of analysis into your writing, uh, social science, personal um, fiction, right? In Red Hangover, you're, um, you, you include these short stories, which I thought was just, I was telling just Ryan and Jared how unique I thought that was. You know, usually I understand doing field work, you come across so many snippets and it's really actually difficult to incorporate all of those snippets into social science, nonfiction kinds of essays. And so the, your, your fictional stories were great ways I could imagine of inc like uh, incorporating all of your journalistic almost, you know, uh, reading and knowledge. Um, and so I, I can see that um, this has stylistic implications but it also has a political dimension, certainly one political dimension being that it is more accessible to a wider audience. Um, but is, is there or are there other reasons you chose to write like this? And maybe you could just reflect on that a little bit, because I think it would be helpful for even people trying to find their voice in as scholars, right? Because you, you, it feels like even from from my perspective, I was like, "Wow, I don't, I don't think I would even. I, I, I never thought that I would have the almost the courage to to write like you do." So maybe you could um, talk a little bit about your choices. Yeah. So I, you know, first of all, I don't think this is a secret that I have kind of like a little mini obsession with Alexandra Kolontai. <laughs> um, I do this. I, I write a lot about her. I talk a lot about her. I, yeah, I, I've spent right, a lot of exactly. time reading about her, right? So so one of the things that I remember at some point realizing is that she wrote a lot of fiction in addition to her many um, essays and pamphlets and books. And, and she was a very prolific writer. And, you know, uh, the Motherhood and Society book is like 650 pages a very detailed analysis of every single law in Europe that dealt with maternity and, and family stuff. I mean, she was just, you know, incredible researcher. But those were books that she wrote for people who were making laws. That book in particular was, you know, for the, the, the Social Democratic Party in Germany. They were discussing certain kinds of policies and then eventually that would impact the way that they framed the legal codes, the family codes in the Soviet Union. But when she was reaching... When she wanted to reach ordinary women, many of whom, by the way, were either illiterate or just becoming literate, she wrote stories. She wrote novels. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of debate about the literary quality of these novels, but I don't think that that was ever her point. I think her point, and, and, and by the way, Krupskaya, she, she wrote in 1899, um, a pamphlet called The Woman Worker. It's a very important little pamphlet that was published in 1901. And it's specifically written in, it, it's almost like a, a written for a child. And so it comes across as very strange, but you can clearly see that she's writing for an audience of women who either can barely read or are going to be in a room together with other women and somebody's going to be reading it aloud to them, which is often how um, people had access to these, these literatures. So that really got me thinking about the ways in which Marxists frame their political interventions in writing. And, you know, I, I don't think this is a secret that we, we can be very obtuse 
<laughs> we can use language that is inaccessible to ordinary people. And I know you've done some popular education teaching. I know you've, I know you're not one of these people, but I, I think that there are a lot of people who, who get into the sort of weeds of some of these things. And then it becomes very difficult for people outside of those circles to, 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 to follow. So, so on the one hand, I think that using a more journalistic style, even as far as fiction, makes the work much more accessible to other people who are outside of academia. And I will say that that has been true in, 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 in my um, experience. Many people outside of academia have had access to my texts. They've read a story or they've read an article of mine, and then they might go and actually dig into a more historical book like Second World, Second Sex, which was much more of a traditional academic book or Muslim Lives in Eastern Europe, for instance. But I think that the other thing is, and, and I don't know if I'm gonna be very articulate, articulate in this one, but if you study Marxism, especially in the Soviet Union, but in, in my case, I spent a lot of time in Bulgaria, looking at this thing called uh, bit, bitovo cultura. It, it's a it's a concept about everyday life, right? That many of us don't experience politics through texts, but we experience politics through the way that people treat us or through the texture of our daily life. You know, so a very simple thing like Krupska is saying that we should not organized classrooms with teach with a teacher standing up in the front and everybody seated in front of us, you know, it should be a circle, right? Or uh, the idea that, again, in this woman worker pamphlet that Krupski has, she describes a whole bunch of things that will happen if the working class comes into power in Russia and if they overthrow the Tsar. And then at the very end of this description, it's like a really beautiful kind of lyrical little description about how much better the world will be. And then she says, the people who advocate for this kind of change, they're called socialists, <laughs> right? She names them in this very sort of simple way, right? People who do this are called this. And I think that like writing in a more accessible style, as difficult as it often is, and as I would say risky as it is, particularly for scholars, because you have to reduce your arguments more or less into sound bites, the experience of reading that is also, for people, is also a way of experiencing the openness and receptivity of the left. Because if all you ever get are these really turgid texts that are that are impenetrable or or at least require David Harvey on YouTube to walk you through them, right? Um, you're going to feel an ordinary person is going to feel alienated, I think. And what we want to do is reduce alienation. And and so I'm not, um, you know, I don't think of myself as a very good writer per se. I think I'm a clear writer. And, and, and I think that there's something valuable in clarity and, and there's something really valuable in bringing people along, even if they're not necessarily ready to take the full leap into understanding your, um, your politics. And I had, I, I had a, a recent disagreement with somebody about precisely like, what do you do with people who aren't radical enough? What do you do with the 
the flaccid social Democrats in the middle, right? Um, who are actually, you know, to many people, they're the ones actually upholding the system by creating these reforms that allow capitalism to perpetuate itself. Well, again, here's where I think history is really interesting. It turns out that a lot of those Menshevik type folks, Colin Tai was one of them, they get radicalized, right? Social democracy is often the gateway drug, right? That brings them along. And so I think there's a way in which writing, using all of the tools of rhetorical expression, let's just put it that way. And these can be broadly conceived, right? Because I, I think podcasts are really important. I think YouTubers are really important. I think memes are incredibly effective ways at, at reaching out, especially to young people. And, and, and there's, I hear there's a whole left talk out there where you have content creators on the left who are doing really interesting things on TikTok. So all of these are ways of taking sometimes tedious histories or complex theoretical considerations and giving people an avenue into those larger discussions, if that makes sense. I don't know. I mean, it does. I mean, I it is not easy to to write um, to get an academic press to publish fiction, for instance, in the middle of a book of essays. So it has been a struggle, but I do think in the end it has been a good decision. Really, I'm I'm, I'm even surprised by that. I mean, and I was remembering there was a short story where you had, where a man, a young man is trying to bury his father and there's a sort of struggle with his mother about whether there should be a star or not. And she, she says exactly kind of what you just said, right? This is what it, what it meant to be a socialist for these two people was trying to make the world a better place. Like it was just, it was just like that. And, and so I think what you're also trying to do is open what exactly are the possibilities really for like that they're very that people understood that term and in and i guess this kind of leads in, into my second question about your writing style right um and and i think that for a lot of let's say marxists that were really interested in defending socialism there was a sort of fixation almost on statistics uh, to prove that socialism was not just productive of gray, hungry, mean lives. And so then there was the statistical sort of empirical proof that this is how many people gained this many more calories, right? Um, and in your project has been so much more about subjectivity, relations, what you just described as the texture of life, and, act and and obviously the texture of life also involved gender relations, right? And so really paying attention to the gendered part of the texture of life. And, um, and I think that, you know, there was often this assumption about what, sub that there was a uniform subjectivity under totalitarian socialist regimes, and your project is is kind of complicating what it what subjectivity what the 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 variety of really subjectivity under socialist lived experiences maybe could you tell us a little bit about that uh, about your project who, about your project for listeners who aren't as familiar 
with this discourse about subjectivity and social relations. Right. So there's a, you know, in in his in the field of history, especially Soviet history, East European history, there's this, what we call the totalitarian thesis versus the revisionist thesis. This has been a longstanding debate, uh, goes back, obviously, people like Sheila Fitzpatrick, who I mentioned earlier. So the totalitarian thesis is that there is no civil society in these state socialist countries because they are totalitarian, because you have a centralized power, you know, there's no democracy, there's no feedback loops, there's no social protests, everything, you know, free speech, freedom of expression, freedom of conscience, all these things are illegal. And so therefore there's no ways in which the citizens are participating in the perpetuation of the regime. Now, for anybody who lived in Eastern Europe, and certainly for those of us who have done extended field work or done extended archival research, this is, you know, this is patently false. <laughs> um, it is it is a very political thing to engage in this debate because when you say that there was civil society, for instance, that there were feedback loops, that there were mechanisms, that people did write complaints, that people did have some forms of speech, that people did have some forms of protest, that, that throws everything into chaos for those people who believed in the 20th century that the United States in particular, but the entire Western world had to crush communism in the East at all costs, right? That this was a nefarious political project that was oppressing hundreds of millions of people around the world. And, and I think that the reason why, and I have done recently done this as well. I've, I just published a brand new book with my colleague, Mitchell Orenstein, called Taking Stock of Shock, which is all about looking at the data for the last 30 years. And I do exactly what you, you, you say. I like, we, quote, we quote a lot of statistics, right? But the reason why I think that, that there's a tendency to do that is because, you know, when people think of the Eastern Bloc, they think of the gulags and the famines and the purges. And then how do you explain that life expectancy in Russia went from like 33 years to 68 years over the course of the Soviet Union? So, and that's including, you know, World War II, where the upwards of 25 million Soviet citizens were lost. So you, there, there's just kind of a, and then you can look at life expectancy in countries like Bulgaria or Albania, and you find similar jumps, 18, 20 years, sometimes in only 40 years rather than 70. So that sort of knocks people out of their um, stereotypes a little bit. Again, infant mortality, maternal mortality, there are all sorts of things that you can yeah. that you can go to to say, well, how is this possible? How do you square these two figures? Well, what what do most Westerners say? Oh, they're lying. You can't trust the statistics, right? That's the common answer I and get all the time. You can't trust any surveys. Pandemic even, right? When when exactly when we were confronted with Chinese mortality statistics. Exactly, exactly. So, but I think that this is the thing. So, what I try to do is to to humanize communists. To to say these men and women who fought on the left side of history, that's the name of one of my book books. Um, I, I really try to say, well, okay, well, let's think about what did these, what did these people believe? How did they come to socialism? What was it about this project that animated them? How did they live their lives as socialists, right? 
Um, my, I was married to a Bulgarian and I have a ex-father and mother-in-law who I'm still quite close to. And they were both very committed socialists. They're both now, one is in their nineties, one is almost 90. And I'm always really curious about, I love to talk to them about what it meant to go from being a poor peasant in a village, a extremely backward village of Petruc in rural Bulgaria to, to, to get an education, to rise up through the ranks, to become the deputy minister of transportation, right? Over the course of one lifetime, to see that kind of social mobility, what it meant to actually believe in the ideals that you're trying to make a world, the world a better place. Those are the kinds of things that I'm interested in. Those are the stories that I think that get, get, that get lost. And again, those are stories that can't be told with statistics. They have to be told. They have to be told with with narrative, you know. So the 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 short story that you mentioned about whether or not to put a cross or or a star was the debate in this particular family on the grave of a father who had just recently passed. This was actually a story that somebody told me. A, a young Serbian researcher told me when I was in. Freiburg, Germany. And again, you know, it's hearsay. So I can't tell that story as a story, as a, as a, as an ethnographic episode, right? I can only tell it as a story, but, but I think that that actually in some ways makes it more effective because you can, to come back to your question about fiction, you can, one thing as a social scientist that I cannot do, or I do not feel comfortable doing is examining the interiority Mm. of my subjects unless I can quote them directly as they speak about their interior thoughts or their dreams or their hopes for the future. And many of them do, by the way, especially in retrospect, you know, about what they were hoping to do. But when it comes to the interiority of characters that I'm, I don't have access to, right? That's where fiction is extremely valuable. Understanding the interiority of, of, of why people come to their political convictions and I feel like we live in an an interesting moment in the United States where we give people a lot of leeway for different sorts of identities, but not for their political identities. We can be very, very judgmental and I don't know, um, almost sort of, um, I can't think of the right word. There's a sort of intolerance of people's political position. And we very rarely ask ourselves, how did that person come to that political position? What was the process? What was the journey? How did they become that political person? And that story to me is such an important story. And again, if we come back to this concept of bitubo kultura, right? The idea of bit, the, the idea that the texture of everyday life is what makes us the people that we are, is what brings us into the world as political subjects, then rather than the statistics or the macroeconomic factors that are impacting that person's life, or rather than the way that they're performing that political identity necessarily, it's also important to understand the emergence of that political identity from the cultural context. And here I really am truly an ethnographer. I'm so interested in the ways in which we become who we are and the ways in which we're always in the process of becoming that which 
we will eventually be, even though we don't know what that is. We always have these political horizons, these possibilities out in front of us. And each and every day, in each and every moment, when we make decisions, we are um, navigating or orienting ourselves towards particular futures. And that process to me is at the essence of the ethnographic project. And that's why I think it's so important to write about that project rather than just the statistics. Thank you. That was really inspiring. So in Second Sex, you give sort of a three-prong rationale for why it is that the narrative of Second World Eastern European Soviet bloc um, feminists are not included in the general narrative of Western or third world feminist movements throughout the world, right? And the one that really stuck out to me was this notion that the second world feminists did not consider themselves in line with the sort of Western interest, the, the more bourgeois interests of the Western feminists. And the Western feminists didn't consider the second world feminists in line with their values. And it was that sort of lack of identification with the other that brought those in the Eastern European countries more in line with those interests of the third world countries after a certain point. And then throughout the book, you talk about that again and again, after a certain point that formed a real cohesive and strong bond between those sort of seemingly disparate areas, but actually ended up being very in line with one another. kind of tying it back into what you just said and then maybe looking towards the future a little bit, is that type of lack of political identification with one forming, you know, a more cohesive identification with others that we might not otherwise still possible today, you know, and I'll frame it, I'll try to bring this back to what you were saying a little while ago too. There are so many different ways with which young people can come into Marxism today. As you said, there are, you know, leftist TikTok accounts. There are, and there are hundreds upon hundreds of, there's uh, some really great YouTube channels out there. There are Reddit board discussions, there are podcasts, all of these things. And each one, if you follow them down their sort of political line, will get you to a point, I, in my experience, where you're you end up being accused of things that you didn't even know that you had signed on for after a certain point. Because if there's one thing leftists are good at, it's finding fault in other leftists after a certain point. Yep. So how do you form solidarity, especially with young people being locked inside of their houses for the, you know, greater part of a year and a half now, a lot of them are communicating online uh, politically exclusively, right? And I think a lot of that communication might have been, um, I don't know, maybe not wholly constructive, to say the least, for some of them. Do you think that there's a possibility for that kind of similar cohesion? Or is that kind of transnational, I would say, identification with other people? Is that something that we've lost? So uh, here's where I think the Greens... Are, are better at this, the, the environmentalists. Yeah. Um, they, because of the nature of the problem as they have framed it, they're much better at having a big tent and of, of, of bridging those international uh, divisions. It's a supranational movement and it's very easy to understand why, because climate change, right? Mm-hmm. It's a global planetary problem. Now, capitalism is too. 
but but we're not very good at framing it that way i think mm-hmm. right i think that so so sometimes you know there there's sort of like there's so many so many layers of competitive victimhood on the left for lack mm-hmm. of a better term I recently read Jody Dean's Comrade. I don't know if you've read this book. No. And, and I read the Comrade. It's a, I, I, Communist uh, Horizon? That was her other. Yeah, The Communist Horizon, and there's crowds and parties. And her, her most recent book is, I just, just had it a minute or two ago. Um, it's called Comrade. And she makes a really, she, she addresses precisely some of this issue that you're addressing right now, which is how do we find common cause without losing sight of our, uh, of the power hierarchies that often uh, distinguish us from each other, right? Without eliding um, the very real race and, and, and gender and, and, you know, issues of sexuality and inability and so on and so forth that are important to keep focused, right? And it, this often falls under the umbrella of intersectionality as a, mm-hmm. as a term. She makes a very concerted effort to, to convince us that we should all start calling each other comrade as a term. And she does a nice, you know, um, etymology of the word and why it's important. And, and I actually, I, I find her arguments really interesting. They certainly made me think a, a lot about what we lost when we lost the word comrade. I also recently reread for the first time in many years, Vivian Gornick's The Romance of American Communism. Mm-hmm which is such an interesting book. It, it's, it's an artifact of a particular moment in time. But as you know, I'm sure it's been recently reissued by Verso. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of young people are coming to that book for the first time. And, and, and Jody Dean leans very heavily on insights from Gornick. And so, you know, one of the things that I think ha- we have to overcome is this is this rigidity on the left. And and this is precisely why I use the term left fluid. Everything else is allowed to be fluid, but not our politics. (laughs) And and that is the kind of thinking that consistently marginalizes the left throughout history, right? We can go back to the Weimar Republic and look at the KPD and the uh, Social Democratic Party and the fact that they could not cooperate. And what did we get? The Nazis, right? So so there's there's a way in which I think Flexibility, receptivity, compromise, conversations are really important. And part of the and and and, and here again, I'm old, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna like put this out there. I think that the algorithmic nature of some of the things, the technologies that we use online, they feed into the sectarianism, the factionalism that you see, right? And that the fact that those are all for-profit capitalist platforms, right? Why are we organizing on, um, why are we organizing on capitalist platforms? That, that, that That's always a big question. I remember I interviewed a, a gentleman in, in Germany a couple of years ago who organizes the very large Liebnik Luxembourg March every January. It's the largest uh, leftist march in Europe every year. And they don't have a Facebook page. They don't, or, they don't organize anything. And I said, like, you would get so many more people if you were on Facebook. And he was like, why would I interact with a capitalist platform? It was the first time I was like, oh, wow, that's a really good point. 
<laughs> right? The CIA is all over that thing, right? Yeah. He, he had no interest whatsoever. So, so part of it is, is I think, a strategic reliance on, um, on, on these for-profit technologies that are run by algorithms that, that lead to factionalization. That's just the nature of the game because they want to keep you on the screen, right? Um, that's a, I think, and again, I think other people have written about this, uh, Shoshana Zuboff's book about yeah. the age of surveillance capitalism, right? I mean, there's all sorts of people who are out there talking really wonderfully and, 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 and thoughtfully about the contradictions in our uh, platforms for organizing. That being said, obviously during the pandemic, we couldn't get together in groups. We couldn't meet in groups. But if you read the romance of American communism, if you read Comrade, if you read some of these stories of the left, if you read the history of the Soviet Union and Lenin and Krupskia in 1894 in their little circles in the Vyborg district of St. Petersburg, right? They are meeting. They're talking to each other. There's a human connective tissue to the movement. And that is what we have lost, I fear, because of our over-reliance on the uh, platform technologies that we have. And look, a lot of people in my many years of studying leftists and leftist lives, and I just finished a beautiful book by Maria Todorova called the Lost World of Socialists at Europe's Margins, Imagining Utopia. It's a great book. And it's all, it's a prosopography of European socialists in the margins, particularly in Bulgaria. And what she shows you is that the vast majority of people who came into leftist politics, they come in because of a connection to somebody that they admired or they loved, a teacher, professor, a cute guy, <laughs> um, a, a sexy uh, political activist. You know, um, there's there's that that human connective tissue is so important. And so, to answer your question, is you know, I don't have the answer. I don't think there's an easy answer to this. But I do think that to the extent that we can reinsert into our political movements the human connective tissue right? Of, of physically people being in a place together at the same time for the same purpose. That builds a movement in a way that nothing else does. And again, I, I want to quote this Krupskaya pamphlet that I'm spending a lot of time with right now, the woman worker from, from 1901. In that pamphlet, she says that women in Tsarist Russia are uniquely unpolitical. They're, they're largely illiterate. They have, if they have work, they have family responsibilities, they're exhausted. They don't, they don't have any confidence. They won't speak up at meetings. Even if they're interested in the ideas, it's very difficult to get women involved in the, in the movement. And, and what Kripskia says is the only way to get women involved in the movement is to get them involved in the movement. <laughs> They need every time they go to a protest, every time they go, there's an action directed against the police. Every time that a woman, and she's very specifically speaking here about a Russian woman in Tsarist Russia, is in a crowd with her comrades, and she realizes that alone she has no power, but with others she has power. She she gains strength. She gains confidence and engagement, and so it's like a virtuous cycle. If she has the tenacity to engage, the engagement builds her tenacity. 
The more she engages, the more tenacious she becomes until you have an incredible group of radical Russian women on the streets in February 1917 that forced the abdication of the Tsar, right? It took 16 years, 17 years between Krupski's pamphlet, The Woman Worker, it's the first um, uh, pamphlet addressing specifically women from a socialist perspective in Russia. 17 years later, they're on the streets and the revolution begins. So it took 17 years, but nevertheless, I thought that was a really impressive message. You engage and you get strength and you engage and you get strength. But that engagement, I think, can't always be online. It has to be in a crowd with people. Um, Mabel Ratza, he's an ethnographer at Colby College. He wrote a beautiful book and made a wonderful documentary film called Bastards of Utopia about anti-globalization anarchists in Croatia and Slovenia. And he talks a lot about feeling the skin on your, uh, sorry, feeling the state on your skin is how he calls it, right? That when you engage, there's something really important. Uh, there's a kind of solidarity that is formed there that is really important uh, to people and to movements writ large. And he also, again, I think going back to Vivian Gornick, he says that there's a kind of romance in activism and that we should not discount the importance of, of, of young people who are looking for a purpose, looking for solutions to the problems that the world faces. They don't want to be on the sidelines. They don't want to be apathetic. I think that there is a kind of value in the imagination that you can make a difference. And guess what? The history of socialist movements in the 20th century shows us that you can if you get together with other people. And that is a hopeful, ultimately a very, very hopeful message. It's just that it gets lost in the infighting and the factualism and all the things that are, you know, the debates that we have, which are important. Do we need a state? Should we have, you know, collectives? How big should the collectives be? Should they be based at a workplace? Should they be based in communities? I mean, yes, I understand that those are important issues, but nevertheless... We all have a common problem like the environmentalists do. They're so much better at this. We should learn from them in some ways, right? Let, better yet, we should bring them on board, right? They, they, need to be, um, they need to be part of a big tent, big tent movement. Um, I don't know. I, I, I wish it was that easy. I know it's hard and I know there are many struggles, but I do think that it's important to get together, however that looks the, the physical proximity, like that connective human tissue has to happen. It can't just always be mediated by for-profit corporations online. I mean, frankly, we saw some evidence of this even in, during the George Floyd rebellion in the summer, right? In the U.S. Exactly. Um, I have friends from all over the world being like, this is what, this is incredible. This is amazing. I, you know, um, so it was that that's kind of evidence and proof of what you're saying, right? That it was absolutely, dangerous. yeah, um, and yeah, absolutely. Despite the fact that there I'm, was actually a pandemic, you know, an act. Right, I know, I know. But also for me, you know, I I organized a protest against the first Iraq War, and I organized protests against the second Iraq War, and neither of them did anything. I mean, unfortunately, but 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 they did to me. And they did to the people who participated. And I think that's an important lesson too. Sometimes you fail, right? 
I mean, you know, if you if you look at the history of Lenin and Krupska in exile in 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 Western Europe uh, before uh, 1917, it's kind of a a history of failure. I mean, <laughs> they were fighting with everybody. Kind of shows you how really arbitrary success actually was, right? Like it was like exactly, yeah. exactly. There are there are just wonderful stories of you know Lenin coming back from a conference and having a nervous breakdown and getting ringworm, and you know Krupski painting his body down with iodine as he squeals, you know, because he's like. The revolution was killing him at that point. He was just so fraught by everything, all the infighting with Trotsky and everybody else and Plekhanov, and they were going nuts. But in the end, it's very arbitrary. But in the end, like it's like the the the, the revolution and and social change gets forged through the process of making it. And I think the problem is for many young people today, they want they want the ends without having to deal with the means, and the means are hard. It means grunt work. It means anxiety and depression and loneliness and frustration and anger and all those emotions that are ugly. We have to deal with those emotions. I mean, I, I'm not saying that we should all just become basket cases, but 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 part of that is the process of becoming. Uh, that's what I said earlier. That you know that this this constantly orienting ourselves to a future point means that everything that we do in the current moment between now and that future point, whenever it is, is a political act, even if it's just going to sleep, like Jonathan Crary tells us, right? That just going to sleep sometimes is a political resistance and refusal against capitalism. So I think that helps make it all worth it in the short term. And certainly when I do interviews and I talk to people in Eastern Europe, especially people you know, octogenarians and nonagenarians, people of the, the Second World War generation, you know, who remember actual fascists in their countries, right? What got them through every day, the hunger and the and the frustration and the and the hopelessness and the despair, because let's face it, there was a lot of despair in World War II. I don't think I don't have to say that, but is the possibility of a better future. It's that orientation to the future and that that's so that and the connective tissue. So 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 like if I could prescribe like as a doctor, you know, take two doses of solidarity with other human beings um, with the long term goal of building something better in the world together. That's what we need. How we operationalize that in reality is, you know is the big question. But I think that having a future orientation and having a commitment to the solidarity and collectivity of doing that with other people is the only way we're gonna, we're gonna manage. Uh, so we have one last question for you. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, um, I, maybe, I, I guess I'd, I'd like You've already mentioned this in, uh, at a few points, but I'm going to pick it up a little bit more explicitly. You know, oftentimes when people are talking about socialist countries that are no longer socialist, they are referred to as failures, right? And then uh, co communist socialists are constantly being asked, why are you thinking about failures, right? And of course we can point to spectacular capitalist failures, but somehow failure doesn't get attached in an essential kind of way to capitalism, right? It doesn't take the blame for its failures 
while somehow socialism is kind of assigned to the dustbin of history for its worst versions, right? Um, and in in a it, so how do how do you how do we think about detaching failure from socialism? How how do you I, and I know so much of your project has been let's let's be, let's let's pay attention to the nuances, but but maybe here how how do you how do you do this other kind of work around failure and how do you talk people mm -hmm. out of yeah no right and that's where i do think you know unfortunately sometimes those statistics really come in handy you know so this new book that has just come out with oxford with my colleague mitchell orenstein one of the things that we say is that there are at least 60% of the people living in the former socialist world that do not have the standard of living today that they had in 1989 or 91 when communism collapsed. So in terms of failure, 30 years of capitalism has failed. But we don't get that narrative. You know, failure, this is a particular product of the Cold War, this, this idea of Western triumphalism at the end. The Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union collapsed, the West won the end of history, liberal democracy, free market capitalism, rah, rah, rah. That's what we hear. And then things like the 2008 financial crisis. Oh, well, that's not really part of capitalism. Things like slavery. Oh, that's not really part of capitalism. Things like the genocide of the Native American. You know, oh, well, the, these all of these things well, what about like are 4. just... 4.3 million people dead because of COVID yes. when they actually didn't need to go down like that, right? Exactly. Right. I mean, we can think of so many, uh, so many examples of where capitalism has faltered or failed miserably. I mean, the Great Depression, right? There's so many examples of this. But, but the thing is, is that the narrative that we hear, and I have written about this, is that there's no, uh, this, it's the worst system except for everything else. Capitalism is the best of the of the worst, right? Like, okay, yes, it's not perfect, but it's better than anything else. And 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 you know, I, I think there's a famous Churchill quote about democracy being um, the worst system except for everything else, right? So so part of that, part of what I think is really important, you know. And then by the way, like if if you bring China into this, this also gets really interesting. But that's a that's a tangent. I, I don't want to go there. But but I think that what's really important is that every time there's a moment of somehow being able to throw shade on socialism. Everybody piles on and, and, and it's often, you know, reduced to the worst crimes of Stalinism and the gulags and the famines and so on and purges and so on and so forth. And if there's any achievements of socialism, uh, then those always get sort of explained away as some kind of weird aberration that had nothing to actually do with the system itself, you know, raising life expectancy or, you know, women's rights or achievements in art or in culture and music. There are so many, I have lots of colleagues, architecture is another one, public transport. I mean, there's so many things that we could talk about um, when we talk about very specific sort of uh, innovations that came out of Cold War competition during the 20th century that had a lot to do with the Soviet's allocating resources in a particular way. So, you know, the launch of Sputnik is a great moment to actually trace this out. 
So I think that what we have to do is, you know, rather than you know, really constantly hammering on the failures of capitalism, which are important to point out, obviously, but I think many people are aware of them. I do think it's worth going back and, and, and doing things like the protests going on in Cuba are an indictment of socialism. The assassination in Haiti has nothing to do with capitalism. Right? How is that? That's a, that's an that's interesting, right? Why is it framed in that particular way? You know, why don't we actually let's look at UNDP statistics which are openly available and let's compare a country like Cuba for instance not to the United States or France, but let's compare them to Haiti or to um another kind of peer country Panama or, or something like that. I think that there's a there's a way in which we need to go back and really say there were some successes, not everything, but there were some real successes. And to detach, exactly as you just said, to detach the sort of baggage of failure from the 20, 20th century experiments with state socialism to from the, 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 the socialist ideals which underpinned that project because they're separable. And one of the things that I tried to do in Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism was to say, wait, 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 wait. A lot of these policies existed in socialist ideology way before the Soviet Union even existed, right? If we look at the utopian socialists in France, if we look at Robert Owen up in, in, in New Lanark, Scotland, there were all sorts of people that were talking about, not to mention if we get into the anarchists, right? So there are all sorts of ideas that predated the East European experiences. And of course, you know, it's also, you know, it doesn't, I don't think for your audience, it doesn't bear repeating, but it is worth occasionally pointing out that the Soviet Union was not a capitalist country when it became uh, a socialist country, right? It skipped a stage, right? It was not the, did not have the ideal conditions for the revolution that people like Marx and Engels were envisioning, right? So, you know, sometimes it's worth reminding people about countries like Yugoslavia and countries like Bulgaria and or Albania or Romania were incredibly backward, semi-feudal agricultural countries when they embarked on the pathway to socialism. And China. And yet I, despite actually, that, that's that's a point that Cedric Robinson even makes, right? That exactly most projects actually didn't come from the scientific socialist path that Marx and Engels envisioned, right? It came from exactly. peasants and artisans and yeah. Sorry. Right, exactly. No, that's and that, I think that's really important, right? And it's and it's partially because of that leap. And let's face it. For countries like Romania and Bulgaria, it was a leap into industrialization and modernization. It's precise, not to mention in, in, in Tsarist Russia, which was way behind the West in 1917. And it closed that gap pretty darn quickly. You can look at the, you can actually look at the trajectories, right? If you look at those GDP per capita numbers, they're 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 going up at the same rate. The US starts higher. But they're going up in the same direction, in the same way. Um, but it's precisely that leap that makes the socialist project so appealing to countries in the global south, which is something that uh, you mentioned earlier about second world, second sex. That and, and many of them did make a leap very quickly, right? Again, you can compare North and South Yemen 
for instance, or compare Ethiopia and Somalia. You can do these comparisons of countries side by side that took different paths to economic development, industrialization, and the socialist path doesn't often come off that badly. In some cases, it comes off really well. But these are the kinds of things that immediately get shut down. And here's where it always comes back to, well, can you, you can't trust the, t- the statistics. You can't trust the numbers. And so then you, you, you have to throw up your hands and be like, okay. But, you know, I think it's, it is frustrating, but it is worth doing the work. And again, this is just a question of going to the UNDP tables and looking at the numbers, right? This is just a question of trying to figure out how do we, how do we measure success? And, and defining success in a particular way is, um, is the way that we try to get away from the language of failure. Because I think the language of failure is, is, a, is a definition of success as defined by the West always. And that we have to really rethink. I mean, many people, though, outside of the discussion of socialism and capitalism, if you think of, uh, is it the Sultan of Bhutan who came up with this gross domestic happiness measure? Just, yeah. You know, there's it's Bhutan. There, I don't think that they have a they have a king, but yes, king. Right. I, I can't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's like yeah, somebody happiness. who's saying yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. World happiness, and and, and, and then, they, uh, they, I think they have like they had like an amazing uh, COVID vaccination. Like they were going to villages and dropping like with helicopters and they were, you know, very. uh, Right. Yeah. Amazing stuff. And, and, and I think in, um, I think it's in New Zealand too, again, probably because of Marilyn Waring that they're, they're also trying to measure well-being, right. In a different way is social well-being. And so, Everybody has has talked about using. I'm so I'm so sorry. That's okay. She's <laughs> she's, <Get> up now. <laughs> she's she's getting hungry now. She's like, yo, mom, now now you now you got to feed me. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care what you're talking about. Like dogs yeah. need food. <laughs> sorry about that. I was worried. <sighs> I was worried about that. But anyway, yeah. Um, all I'll say, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can't remember where I read this thing about Bhutan, but it, it, there's, I think that's where it is, right? Where they, they tried to, I think they actually, not only did they uh, suggest it, but I think there was a formal resolution in the General Assembly of the United Nations to, to, to make this an, a, an official international measure of economic well-being which I think is fascinating. I'm pretty sure that's true, but I don't, I'm, I, I'm nervous about that. So fact check me before you, <laughs> before you publish it, because I, you know, it's like, I read all this stuff and then I'm like, wait, is that true? Did I make, I don't know. Anyway. So well, um, I, I mean, anyway. huge debate about which index to use. And I remember going right a panel discussion about this and there's a proliferation of indices about this, to be honest. Um, yes, and there exactly. was, and there's an interesting past and in history about this when, when the UN actually decided to use GDP and then they eliminated right. household product, right, from GDP measures. And exactly. that I believe Norway and one other country had to actually stop including household labor in their measures. But so, so yes, there's there, there's a lot. Yeah, it's the UN UN system of national accounting it's is, not exactly, is exactly how about this. 
Yeah, it's not. It was it's based on an essay that Keynes wrote like, you know, in the early 40s on how to pay for the war. Right. It's it's totally out of date. So, yeah, I think I mean, I think that's and so that's why I think when we talk about the word failure or the word success, we always have to understand the underlying indices that measure them and and how you know, we need to challenge those indices. We really need to have a conversation about why it is that we're still in, a, in an era of climate change and global heating. Why are we still measuring, uh, measuring um, progress by economic growth? Everybody just got a chance to listen to this conversation that we got to have with Kristen Godsey. And um, we're just going to take a couple of minutes here to sort of say some of the things that really, first of all, I felt like the entire conversation was really such a pleasure to have and really inspiring in many different kinds of ways for myself. And I can, and I'm excited that we get to put this podcast out for sure. Um, and one of the things that I felt like, you know, I knew that there was going to be a part of her project that that definitely is going to appeal to people who are new to socialism and communism and are trying to figure out, well, what exactly is this whole really vexed debate? And why is it that there are some interesting people that I like today, like Bernie Sanders and OS, AOC and, you know, Ro Khanna and lots of other people who are talking about socialism. So if, if you're curious, then this is a great podcast for you. But the thing is, I think it's also a great podcast for those of you, those of us who sort of read this stuff and are familiar with Marxism, because the thing that I found really amazing is she kind of left me, us, with a reading list of all of the amazing feminist thinkers from the second world that we have kind of forgotten. And the reason that's so relevant to us, it's not just you know, history, but for those feminists that today are seeking to kind of thinking about, well, what's an anti-racist and anti-capitalist feminism look like? Guess what? Those are questions that all of those second world feminists have definitely been, were struggling with for so long. And so we can learn something from them. And I, I know that I've, I'm going to go out and you know, get from my library at least three of the books that uh, she mentioned because there were all of these just people that she reminded, she rose that she is helping us remember. Um, but I know that that's not the only thing that comes out of this podcast. There are, yeah. there are some things that were important for each of us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to go along with that, it was very interesting to me as a as a as a writer just her um and and i haven't read the you know uh her works um but uh in terms of her uh moving between genres bringing in fiction in um was striking to me and something i'm very curious about uh exploring in the future and then and then with that also something we've talked about is just kind of her challenge uh to to I feel like to all of us, to this, uh, we've been in pandemic time. 
we don't have to stay there. Um, and I feel like, yeah, she really pushes us to think about leaving pandemic time. What does that look like? Um, and, you know, how, how do we organize? How do we push things forward from where we're at right now? And, and really just her, her challenge to, to get, get with other people, that this isn't going to just happen virtually. Um, we, we need to be face-to-face. We need to be talking to people. We need to be in other situations where different types of, of things can happen, different kinds of activities, different kinds of exchanges, um, and building up our, our, our capacities to act together. Um, that that it's, it's not that it's bad or wrong that we have social media and that we're able to talk with people on all sides of the world, but also there's, there's potentially things that we miss and that we lack. And so as we're kind of le- hopefully leaving pandemic time, although, you know, obviously things are up and down, um, that's something that I definitely am thinking about. And then, you know, that really plays into this whole idea of a reading list too, right? What's uh, for you know, something on my mind and has been on my mind is thinking about, you know, starting, you know, starting a reading group, uh, getting, getting folks reading and talking. Um, and, you know, these things can, these things can connect to other activities um, in terms of, you know, supporting uh, local efforts, you know, um, there, there's, there's always something going on in, in any particular locality, you know, currently going on in my neck of the woods, we have labor issues in higher ed. Um, and so these are opportunities for people to get out, see other people and, you know, you know, join a, a demonstration, uh, a march, um, a, a, a reading group, do things. Um, that to me was a, a very positive uh, sort of challenge and something to take forward. Uh, what about you, Ryan? Yeah. Um, no, I agree with uh, both your statements. Um, I got a lot to read. I got a lot I want to read. And um, it is nice to be reminded that uh, praxis doesn't ultimately amount to getting in arguments with people on the Internet. But more so, I think, and this was the point I was making the other day when I was we were talking about this discussion, there's something real inspiring just about discovering a history that you were never privy to and realizing that there's so much out there. There's such a rich history of, of Marxist activists, uh, especially women Marxist activists. And um, the thing that I want people to take away from this interview is just that, that there's always so much more to learn, but we are operating under a very rich and very lively and, you know, very wonderful history. There's a lot of mistakes and there's a lot of failures, but that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. I'm very happy and I feel very privileged to have gotten to talk to her and I'm hope, hopefully people really enjoyed this discussion. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so, uh, to kind of leave it there. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, failure is failures are things we can learn from. I think so often, you know, we live under uh, a sort of capitalist imaginary that that likes to cover over failures rather than learn from them. Um, and so, maybe part of uh, what we take away from this again is just thinking about the failures of socialism, not not in a negative sense, but in this sense of yeah, what can we take forward? What can we learn? Uh, what can we incorporate today? Uh, so we hope that you've enjoyed uh, this episode of Overdetermined. And uh, Ryan, uh, where can people 
uh, follow us and all of that. Yeah, if you want to interact with us, if you want to reach out, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Rethinking Marxism. You can check out the website as well, and you can, as always, uh, check out the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thank you.